You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. BMJ Careers last week published an article called The New Lost Tribe, describing the cohort of surgical trainees moving into ST3 this year. Ed Davis, careers editor for the BMJ, is here to tell me what this is about. So, Ed, who is this lost tribe and, and why are they a lost tribe? Hi there, yes. I mean, essentially what the article looks at is doctors progressing from the second to the third year of surgical training. Um, and I suppose the focus is, is that it's whilst it was always hard and competitive, it is getting harder and harder and more and more competitive to the point where actually it's a bit possibly getting a bit silly. Sure. For people outside the UK, um, to progress from your second to your third year, you have yep. to apply for places. Specialty training is very complicated and it's difficult to say that one thing is true right across the board, but a lot of surgical specialties are uncoupled. Um, what that means is you do your first couple of years as core training, and then in, for your third year you apply uh, to, 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 to your sort of subspecialty, whatever that may be, within surgery. Um, there are still courses that go run through as well, um, but for a lot of surgical specialties, that, that's how it's worked for the last few years. Sure. And so that this pool of people building up trying to get into ST3, their timetable. That's right. Um, it's, I mean, it's not historically a complete anomaly that this should happen. Uh, a lot of the time in, in years gone by, this would have happened and people would have applied over several years. Uh, and what it is, is that they'll finish their, their ST2 level, then there'll be a huge number of applicants for a slightly smaller number of places. And so there'll be a certain amount of wastage each year. And that wastage will probably reapply the next year. And each year that builds and builds. And it's not unusual, but what, what's happening this year is that that wastage has got so big that a lot of, uh, basically, in certain areas of the country, if you're a second year, there's no point in even applying for a third year place because none, I mean, across, we found, across the northern deanery, uh, across the Yorkshire and Humber area, uh, not a single general surgeon was even interviewed for an ST3 place coming straight from uh, ST2 level because so many were coming back in from previous years. So they're going off, and what are they doing in their intervening years? Uh, a variety of things, really. Um, there'll be some that do research. A lot of them going to a couple of years research things, uh, trying all sorts of things. They might come work somewhere like the BMJ. They might uh, do some locum work, try and fill out their CV, try and get more time in surgery to boost their CV, all sorts of things. Then there'll be those that um, have applied several years running and will think enough is enough and go back and train as something else. So for those doctors, that, that's, that first two years of surgery training is wasted and they'll go back and train as a GP or something, uh, something different where there's more demand. Sure. Now, people being kind of lost in the middle of their training hmm. sort of slightly smacks of MTAS back from 2002. There's, I'd hesitate to say there are parallels because I, I don't want to build this up into something it's not. But it is a similar way that people are going to be sort of set adrift and outside of training programmes. It's in itself, it, it's not necessarily a problem that people are outside training programs. There are very good reasons to be outside a training program at times. But I think what's different in this case, and was the problem with MTAS as well, is that it was very much not through choice. That the, And particularly in this case, they've done two years of their surgical training before being turfed out with little chance of getting back in. And although that, that competition is, is historical and good and we want good surgeons... In some medical specialties now, it's in surgical specialties, it's 15 to 1 of a ratio to get into the year three of your specialty, and that just doesn't serve anyone well. No. There has been suggestion from some quarters that uh, there are slightly ulterior motives for getting so many people 
to ST2 and then not progressing them into ST3. Yeah, there is a cynic's view that this is a good way of creating cheap labour. Um, you can partly train a lot of surgeons with no intention of ever getting them to consultant level. Uh, you never have to pay them as a consultant or treat them as a consultant, but they have a lot of experience in surgery. Uh, I think, and this goes back, there's been a lot of talk over the last few years about sub-consultant grades. And in many ways, this feels like uh, it could be a way of creating a sub-consultant grade. So you've got a number of surgeons, hundreds of surgeons each year, getting to a certain level and then maybe booting their CV with locum appointments and things like that. So they have a fair amount of experience, but they've not been on a training course all the way through to get their CCT. Uh, And so you have some pretty decent, fairly well-qualified surgeons who you can pay half the amount. So what are the bodies, the Department of Health, Royal College of Surgeon, people like that, who are responsible for training? What are they uh, saying about it? Yeah, it's a a bit of a mix, actually. Um, I think a a lot of people are sort of playing catch-up in that it's not unusual to have very high competition for surgical places, and that is a good thing. There was a recent survey from the Royal College of Surgeons uh, in which they interviewed trainees about how how high they thought competition ratios would be, should be. Uh, and it was about split between a bit under two to one and over two to one. So they accept that some competition is good, but I don't think they've quite caught up with the fact that the competition is so fierce now um, that actually you're very unlikely to ever get from second to third year of training. I think it's beginning to sink in and people are realising that. Uh, and I think part of the issue is the, the senior bodies, the RCS, the Department of Health, need to convey that to junior doctors. And I don't think junior doctors realise just how competitive mm. it's become. And I think that's partly because themselves, the Royal College of Surgeons, maybe the Department of Health, aren't publicising or don't know, or for whatever reason, it's not getting down to the juniors. Repeatedly, I've come across the mantra, particularly amongst senior surgeons, saying competition is good. This is not a problem. But I think you also have to view it from the taxpayer's point of view. If you have, you know, if if ratios are 15 to 1, you've got hundreds of surgeons coming through uh, who are most likely going to hang around in service, which is great. So it's not completely wasted. But actually, a lot of them, if they are ambitious, they'll go back and train in a different specialty. Mm. And whilst we can say, oh, you know, it's good they've had this surgical experience and things, they, they needn't have done it. We funded them through years of training that they just needn't have done. Um, and so it, it's not smart planning. Is there any planning at all? There is. I mean, it's it's easy to, to sort of to cuss workforce planning, but it is workforce planning for doctors is an absolute minefield. I mean, if you think of the career of a doctor... Um, from when they start out in, in medicine at the age of 18 as an undergraduate through to when they qualify, it can be 20 years. Mm. I mean, in that time, you're going to get through, you know, half a dozen governments or something with an awful lot of different ideas about how medicine should run and whether we need more GPs or fewer GPs or, or what should be done. So trying to plan a service around those those sort of large-scale needs and then going right down to your local hospital and how population may change and needs there, it is an absolute nightmare. But equally... You do hear people, in, in, particularly in the deanery, saying actually a lot of the time we just lack the data to know what to do. And so it's not easy. That said, there's clearly more that can be done and more is being done at the moment as well. They've recently created the Centre for Workforce Intelligence to look at this. Uh, there are various groups and subgroups looking at these things at the moment. I know that Royal College of Surgeons, Department of Health, BMA are all working together on looking at surgical training. So more is being done. But uh, I, I don't think it's a problem that's going to go away quickly. So you're saying more is being done. Were you able to look at any research when you were investigating a story? 
it's not always easy to come across, actually. Um, deaneries don't keep great data. Um, they, we did manage to get some from a few of the deaneries. It was helpful. Um, there has been some research done by the Department of Health, but when we asked for that uh, under a Freedom of Information request, we were declined uh, on the basis that uh, it currently wasn't in the public interest. Whether that means they are going to publish it in the next few months or, or not, I'm not quite sure. So I think maybe watch that space and see what they say. Yeah. As I'd said, the BMA have been looking at this. And I'm joined in the studio now by Tom Dolphin from their Junior Doctors Committee. Tom, this is a bit of a gold at the end of the rainbow situation. People feel that if they do a little bit more, then maybe next year they'll get it. Go off and do some research and then next year I'll get it. Obviously, that's not going to work out for everyone. So um, what are people's alternatives? People are going to have to think about other alternative specialties or, or even other alternative careers for some people for whom they can't conceive of doing any other specialty than surgery um, or even the particular subspecialty of surgery that they want to do. Part of the problem, of course, is that the the service relies on the fact that people who want to do surgery are very keen to do surgery and to the exclusion of everything else. So the service relies on this because they want to continue the model they've currently got of staffing the service with very junior trainees in surgery. Um, and, and so the service depends on that and people continue to apply and fill those posts at junior level even though it means that there are going to be large numbers of people trying to compete to get a very small number of uh, a higher training posts and then a very small number of consultant posts after that. And the service is taking advantage of people's strong desire to become surgeons. Sure. I mean, this is kind of a, an emergent phenomenon that's just come out of the way trusts handle their trainees. Is there, how much planning is going into working out how many people are needed through, through the various grades? Workforce planning has always been very difficult for the NHS and the Department of Health, and it's been a problem for, for a long time, as long as anyone can remember. Sometimes it gets better and sometimes it gets worse in terms of the outcomes from the decisions that are made. There are working groups and um, uh, planning meetings that happen with the Department of Health which involve uh, members of the profession. There's a working group that happens to be meeting uh, this week that will be looking at, amongst other things, surgical training numbers. And uh, those groups all agree that there are too many training posts in surgery at the lower levels and it's creating this unfortunate effect where people are led on and, and then disappointed uh, unnecessarily. But when the numbers are reduced by reducing the funding for the training posts, the service, the trusts, the employers continue to recruit people at that level in non-training posts because they don't want to change the way they deliver the service. And that's very disappointing. And then the feedback that the groups then get is that, well, yes, you cut the training numbers and there are indeed fewer training posts out there now. But unfortunately, the, the gap has been filled not by changing the service, but by just recruiting people in non-training posts. And those, those doctors are, of course, even worse off than the ones who are in training posts because they're in non-recognised posts that aren't going to count for anything but might cause problems later on when they try and apply for, for training posts because they'll say, well, you've got experience and you've got too much experience, even though it doesn't count for training. It's all very difficult and, and the failure of employers to cooperate by rejigging the way they deliver the service to recognise the realities of how many doctors we have out there in different specialties is very disappointing. So is the BMA lobbying for anything specific? We've always said that the workforce planning has to be improved and that the competition ratios need to be uh, addressed so that they're not at the ridiculous levels they are now. Um, as I say, some competition is fine, but this is this is absurd and it's it's exploitative. What we're specifically calling for is for the service to switch to becoming much more uh, dependent on 
trained doctors, consultants, um, because survey after survey shows that's what patients want and expect, and that's what we think patients deserve. And continuing to staff the service uh, for, all, uh, for all time with junior doctors in the way they're doing, very junior doctors, simply isn't appropriate in this day and age. How do you envisage getting a, a more consultant-led service? Is it going to be training up more consultants? Or? The service at the moment is far too dependent on junior doctors and in the past we've had uh, plenty of things that were done by junior doctors that were taking up many of the hundred hours or so that people used to work in a week that simply didn't need to be done by doctors and those tasks have been redistributed to others. Um, for example, the big, the big example is uh, making up intravenous antibiotics um, that junior doctors used to do, used to take hours every week and now nurses are quite capable of doing it and they do it very well. Um, and that has freed up junior doctor time. There are plenty of other things that could be done um, that could be redistributed to other staff which would allow consultants to focus on delivery of care um, that requires their expertise and their, their specialist training and doesn't require them to do the very uh, the low-level stuff that, that anybody could do. Until the service is prepared, until the employers are prepared to look at this in, in detail, you can't really say how many consultants you're going to need in the service. We may have enough already. We probably will need some more, but we don't know how many more. And that's a piece of work that needs to be done. But the employers need to show willingness to do that first. That's it for this podcast. Later this week, we'll be back looking at drug data in Germany and finding out what to do with a child who bruises easily. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.